Software Engineering Radio Episode 39, Interview with Steve Finoski. Hi everybody, this is a new episode of Software Engineering Radio, another interview episode. Today, we are pleased to welcome Steve Winoski on the podcast. Steve is the Chief Engineer of Product Innovation for Iona Technologies. Iona Technologies, you might know, it's a quite well-known middleware vendor. And Steve is actually what you'd call a middleware guru. He has been involved with Corba quite a bit. He's now working with SOA and Enterprise Integration and Messaging. Um, so in this episode, we are mainly going to talk about various aspects of middleware and Corba. So we want to thank Steve for agreeing to be on the podcast and um, yeah, have fun listening. By the way, I just wanted to mention we have uh, recorded this episode also at the Chao conference in October 2006 in Aarhus, Denmark. So again, you might hear some background noise from the exhibition area. The quality is still really good, I think. So yeah, have fun listening. Okay, Steve, welcome to this uh, interview on Software Engineering Radio. Thank you. Um, <laughs> as our listeners might have guessed already, we're probably going to talk mostly about middleware, since you're definitely a middleware person. Yeah. Um, so how did you get first involved in building middleware communication infrastructure? What's your background there? Okay, I was at Apollo Computer in the late 1980s, and I was actually working on hardware, so was, I have an electrical engineering background. Mm -hmm. I started out making, helping make chips at TI, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I fell in love with software. So over okay. time, I moved more and more into software. So at Apollo, I was working on a system that was a diagnostic system that would let uh, a remote user debug the hardware. Mm -hmm. It was called uh, RISE. It was Remote Interactive Scan Environment. Scan technology is a, a certain hardware technology for testing. Mm -hmm. And so RISE, or RISE++ actually, was <laughs> um, written in C++, but it had a tickle front end where you had commands that you could issue the thing. Yep. So you could sit at a workstation, Apollo workstation, that would be you know fully up and running and everything. The machine you're working on is completely shut down. It just had a small like 20K uh, RPC server inside in a, um, it was a diagnostic CPU. Yep. And that was like my first distributed system. Mm -hmm. I had to write the protocol to do that. Mm -hmm. And shortly after that, HP bought Apollo and they kind of, you know, shifted things around, got rid of the group I was in. So I had to find something else to do. And that's when Corbo was starting up. And that group was uh, Jim Waldo was the technical leader that was at HP. Corba. Yeah, of the Corba oh, development didn't, didn't at, at HP. Uh, okay, okay. And uh, it was the only group I knew of in the company or, or where I was in uh, Massachusetts that was actually writing C++ code. So I joined mm -hmm. there yeah. and the, the rest, rest is history. history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so how many ORPs did you actually implement? <laughs> so let's see. Um, I think the count is six. Okay. Um, when I was at HP, the group there built the first kind of prototype orb for the OMG before the Corbus spec was finished. Just oh, really? That kind was of a show, prototype? Yeah. Okay. Kind of show what it was yeah. or what it would be like. Yeah. And I joined the group right as they finished that one. So I don't mm -hmm. count that one. Okay. But then we worked on a couple more in that group. And then over time, you know, the group changed and got different uh, 
uh, managers and different, you know, pushed into different organizations and yep. stuff. And um, they never really sold any of the orbs until probably the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and by then we had written three or four, five, and then I went to Iona and yep. worked on the one there, Orbix 2000 or Orbix six as yep. it's called now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's six. So how, how did they differ over time? Obviously you learn from doing the previous yeah. ones, but what's kind of the major differences? Well, I think the the early ones were built on previous technology. So uh, Apollo had a network computing system that evolved. Uh, NCS went into DCE. NCS is? Uh, network computing system. Uh, and DCE is a distributed communications environment. Right. So DCE was bigger than just NCS, but NCS played a major role. Other parts from DEC came into DCE as well. Yep. So... Um, the early orbs were all built on top of DCE, mm-hmm. basically. So NCS API, basically. Yeah, it's sort of like taking that fundamental infrastructure and then yep. putting a different API on top of it. Yep. And DCE and NCS both had this sort of little-known feature that they could actually do distributed objects. Mm-hmm. They weren't usually used that way. They were used as pure RPC systems. Yep. But they had, uh, in the protocol, a, a field for an object identifier, basically, so you could target specific objects. So the early ones made use of that. As we went on, you know, the Corbus spec matured, and I remember sitting around, you know, kind of sitting there thinking, what are these type code things? You know, what mm-hmm. are they? What are they meant to be? Because the spec wasn't very clear. Uh, it came from, that part of the spec came from other vendors, not from HP and Sun. HP and Sun were doing joint development back then. Mm-hmm. And it was all the static side of Corba, you know, came from us. And then this dynamic invocation stuff yeah. came from <laughs> Hyperdesk and, uh-huh. and uh, Digital Equipment Corporation. So we were kind of puzzling, you know, we know how to build the static side, but how do you build this type code and DI yeah, yeah. and stuff? Struggled yeah. with that for a long time. And it's funny looking back on it now, it's so simple, you know. Eventually figured it. it, yeah. <laughs> Once we figured out what they were, yeah. um, but over time the infrastructure shifted away from using DCE to uh, IOP and building yeah. your own kind of uh, your own listeners and your own handlers of requests and dispatchers and everything else. It was just a learning process over time of figuring out what the spec was trying to to do. Uh, tightening up the spec, so while we're implementing these things, we're out, we're also in the OMG, kind of you know, can we fix this? Can we fix that? Yeah. So, y- you mentioned before that that um, DCE basically was like distributed APIs, stateless, and Corba provided these object no- notions. Now, current hype more or less, more or less goes back to services. Yeah. So, uh, and also probably Corba best practices will tell you that you should use rather coarse-grained kind of more component-like maybe stateless objects instead of having these fine-grained objects. So how successful was the the object not part of Corba actually? Was it the right direction? Well, that's a... That's or was a it the right notion to communicate? Right. That's, that's a hard question. Um, I think it really depends on what you're trying to do with it. You know, there were s- uh, certain systems that were very successful with that particular approach. And, you know, having stateful objects versus stateless objects and, and the granularity and stuff as people struggled with all that for, for years. Um, if you look at systems like, you know, the, the, the services like the naming service or, uh, you know, the standard kind of Corva services, yeah, yeah. those are object-oriented. 
distributed object and you know people work with them and they work really well yep. uh, certainly have plenty of customers that you know lots of telcos and manufacturing and finance companies that yep. have used Corva and they, they kind of get it after a while and they, they find a way that, that works for them reason I was asking was that these, you know, if you have objects and you distribute the responsibilities, you know, as CRC cards basically tell you, then you get a lot of fine-grained interactions, right. and these obviously don't scale over the network, so there's a, a difference, kind of. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a backlash right now for distributed objects, and you know, services are, are sort of ignoring all that stuff again. They're just saying, you know, here's the service over here, and go call it, and, you know, people uh, want stateless services naturally because they're easier to scale. Yep. And so I think the distributed object paradigm has gotten kind of a bad name, but that's natural when, when technology shifts. You kind of yeah. have, to, have to play down the previous one. Yeah. So I don't think that it's uh, necessarily wrong or bad. It's, you know, for certain applications, it's exactly right. And, yeah. you know, pretty much, for example, anytime you make a phone call in most parts of the world, yeah. you're going through some yeah. Corba software yeah, yeah, in yeah. some fashion, you yeah, know. Yeah. And, you know, the stuff's going to be around for another 15 or 20 years anyway in those in those systems. Which brings us to the question of the future of Corba. But first, right. I'd like to go back briefly um, about the implementation in ORBS. We mm -hmm. all know this, this POSA 2 book, right? Those patterns for distributed systems. Right. Um, How many of these patterns have you actually used, or which you know which are the most important or critical ones? Can you can you characterize that? Well, I don't know if I can recall the the pattern names off yeah, the top yeah. of my head, anyway. but um, I believe I was a reviewer for that book mm -hmm, uh, before it was published, yeah. and I just remembered as I went through the book, kind of going, "Wow, you know, this is exactly right. Yes, we use this. We use this. Yeah. We use this," yeah. and it very well you know succinctly captured a lot of the work that we had done through basically through the 90s on building these systems and yep. so i think you know a lot of doug schmidt's work for example in the papers he put together yep. and just you know uh people attacking this issue trying to figure out what the patterns were and characterize them and write them down uh and again it's like that type code thing that i mentioned when mm -hmm. you read the patterns now you, <laughs> you just go well of course you do it that way yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. to get there took quite a while so yeah. that book in particular is very It's a very accurate uh, kind of uh, collection of, of the patterns that you do use. Yep. I think sometimes you run into people look at patterns books and say, well, do we really use these things? And yep. in that case, yes, yep. Yep. pretty much all of them. Yep. So, okay, now what is the future of Corba? Um, my personal impression is that um, it's more or less happening in technical and embedded systems these days and right. not much in business areas, business systems. I think what's happening is, in terms of the, you can look at it different ways. In the OMG, uh, a lot of the Corba development is in the real-time embedded space. Yeah. So those are the guys, and and that makes sense, you know, because the market for Corba in the enterprise is mature, but the market for Corba in real time, those guys are more conservative. <laughs> so yeah. they're kind of now getting to trust it. And so for them, it's kind of a newer thing. Yeah. Uh, so in the OMG, a lot of what's happening in Corba does get directed by, by that that uh, domain. Yeah. In the market, um, we still see you know some people picking it up, and again, it's the more conservative customer. Yeah. You know, in uh, Asia Pacific, for example, it's very popular. Mm -hmm. For them, 
uh, Corba is relatively new in a way. So I keep getting asked to go to Beijing. We have an office in Beijing. Yeah. And they keep saying, Steve, you need to come over to Beijing because there's all these Corba fans who want to meet you. <laughs> and it's just a long trip. I don't know if I'd want to do it. But yeah. uh, so different parts of the world have also kind of a different view on where the Corba market is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, can you maybe briefly explain what the differences between the normal car bar and real-time car bar and maybe minimum car bar are? Well, uh, I'm not sure of all the, the details. Yeah, no, uh, yeah but I mean, normal Corba has, you know, all the features that it's accrued over the years. Uh, minimal Corba is sort of like, you know, what do we really need to get a system up and running or, you know, what are the features we use most? Yeah. And you can drop a lot of features that, you know, kind of make the whole thing more complex like for example the, the dynamic stuff which yeah, is also important most, in the embedded world right in the in the embedded world in fact most corba applications uh use the static approach yes. and the dynamic approach is good if you need it but if yeah. you don't need it it's kind of like you can just throw it yeah. throw it aside a lot of the code that you have to write to implement the dynamic stuff it's well once you figure it out again like type codes <laughs> It's not that hard. It's yeah. just very tedious, and it's very large. Yeah, a lot of stuff. Yeah, and if you can take that out, you're obviously going to save your application space and yeah. quicker load times, all that stuff. Yeah. So, And then uh, the real-time Corba, well, you know, real-time embedded systems, they have to deal with uh, uh, priorities and making sure that you don't have priority inversion issues and things like that. So request priorities and... Uh, deadlines through the, the system. Yeah, priority propagation. Right. So it's really more about making sure that there's nothing in the specification that would kind of prevent the, the right thing from happening in that regard. Yeah. So is the OMG working on some kind of modernized CARBA? For example, the language mappings, especially for C++ and Java, have been criticized a lot for it, for the right. verbosity and stuff. Is there something happening or is it pretty much, you know, that's how it is? And <laughs> um My opinion is they they won't change them. Uh, I think the issue is, first of all, uh, it, this issue comes up in the OMG every couple of years. Yeah. Someone says, we've got to fix these mappings. Yeah, yeah. And no one is objecting, you know. Mm. But people say, well, are the vendors really going to pick up the new mappings yeah. and implement them? Yeah. The OMG has a policy now that if you issue... If they adopt a technology as a mm -hmm. standard, mm -hmm. they have to have, I think, at least one implementation of it before it'll be adopted. Mm -hmm. Like, it won't even be adopted at all mm -hmm. if there's no, nobody implementing it. Which is a it. good thing for yeah, a change. it's nice to have for standards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I think people are worried the vendors would not implement it. Now, the open source orbs may implement yeah. you know, because they have uh, more flexibility, like with... With our Orbicus Orb, for example, which is not open source but source available, yep. we could maybe do something like that. Yep. But our customers really don't want to have to go retool their code because, again, it's kind of it's already out there. It's deployed. They're not really actively developing it, but they're actively using it. Yep. Um, so, if it's going to happen, it would happen in the real time area mm -hmm. because. Mm -hmm. Again, that's where that's the where action is. Music plays, yeah. yeah in terms of core, my involvement in the OMG, um, I haven't been to a meeting in a while now. The last thing I worked on was Corba Reflection, mm -hmm. which What's became that? a standard. Uh, it was actually something that, that I did 
kind of single-handedly almost. Well, that's not entirely true. There was uh, Frank Pilhofer of Mercury Systems helped me out quite a bit with the reflection, but it was something that I put into the OMG as an RFC. Mm-hmm. And the reason I put it in, or what it is, it's really introspection. Yep. So an object should have all of its metadata available at runtime, and it actually does have its metadata available at runtime, but it's never been exposed before. Mm-hmm. And because we were trying to take our customers forward into the world of web services, so we want to keep all their Corba objects and systems running, but be able to get at them through web services applications. Mm-hmm. I needed a way to go to an object, Corba object, and just say, give me your metadata, give me your IDL, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you could do that through the interface repository, mm-hmm. which is standard part of Corba, but yep. nobody really implements it. <laughs> and it's another process that would have to be running somewhere, and yep. most operators don't want to do that at, yes. you know, in production. Yep. So this way, the, data, the metadata is already in the object because it's used for dispatching and marshalling and stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is just an interface. Serializing the data. Yeah, that you could ask an object, say, are you, first, are you um, reflective? Can, can I... You narrow to a reflection interface, yeah, yeah, and yeah. if that works, then you can ask it for the for its metadata, yeah. and you can get it in the form of an interface repository struct that has mm-hmm. every everything in it. Mm-hmm. So all the data about base interfaces, all the operations, all the uh, parameters, you know, everything like that. Or you could actually get it back as XML. And I know a lot of people go, "Ooh, the XML, that's bad." <laughs> but when you're dealing with web services, you're already dealing with XML, so yeah. you can actually pull the XML, and uh, it's a representation of the metadata yep. that's in the object. Yep. So you already mentioned web services. Yeah. So the, the the question: Are they going to replace Carba? <laughs> I know this is a kind of you know yeah, uh, yeah. simplified question, but what's your opinion there? Are they well, going to be as fast as efficient? You know. I think there are some reasonably fast SOAP stacks. Uh, we have uh, an open source project currently in the A- Apache incubator that a lot of Iona engineers are contributing to called Celtics Fire. Mm-hmm. And Celtics Fire is a combination of two projects. One was Celtics that we did in the object web open source community. Mm-hmm. And then Xfire, which ah, I was, uh, I believe, at Codehouse. Yeah. And... Xfire is called the fastest soap stack on the planet. Mm-hmm. Right, so we combine the two, and it's again in the Apache incubator. And I just saw some figures on the performance. And so, if you compare the performance of Celtics Fire to Celtics, you know there's quite a huge yep. difference, improvement. Yep. And I don't know that it will ever be as fast as Corba systems. You know, there are especially some of the embedded or real-time systems yeah, that are the parsing really, is really, overhead, really, right? really fast. Yeah, and yeah. but the point about web services, I don't think they're really uh, meant as a replacement for Corba. I think web services is more about uh, kind of a higher level of integration than Corba did. Uh, with our, we have the Artix product, for example, at Iona, yep. and what it does is it uses web services as an abstraction of kind of middleware. So Middleware, middleware. Yeah. You might have uh, a Corba object that you need to get talking to some tuxedo service. Yeah. You know, and maybe there's some MQ in your enterprise and uh, TIBCO and yeah. things like that. So this, uh, what Artix can do is sort of abstract all that and make 
the development of service-oriented systems such that you're programming against the WSDL and all the details of the transports and the, the uh, protocols underneath are all hidden. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you might have one call going over IOP and then the next yep. call to this other service going over MQ, yep. you know. Yep. And, yep. and I think, you know, for... I suppose you could technically say that Corba could do that because IOP was just one protocol that Corba yes. could have supported. Yep. But it's also the model of programming. You know, there's uh, the IDL versus the WSDL and coupling issues and yeah. and again back into language mappings and stuff like that. Yeah. So there are differences and, and uh, people seem to like Artix. It's a little hard to explain because it's classified as a, an enterprise service bus where most enterprise service buses are these centralized kind of hub-oriented yeah. systems, yeah. glorified JMS. Yeah. You know, our system <laughs> is extensible and distributed. Yeah, uh, there's really no central bus or or hub, yeah. so yeah. it's a little hard to explain. Yeah. But maybe also due to the fact that nobody really knows what an enterprise service bus well, really yeah, is. Well, yeah, that's that's also an issue, I suppose. <laughs> so, um, do you consider web services more like um, RPC with angle brackets, or do you think it's more like messaging, or how do you how would you classify? Uh, I think over time it's changed. So when right. it first started. Uh, you know, I've known Don Box for many years, and he kind of called me on the phone and said, "We're putting this soap thing together, and would you like to look at it?" So we took a look at it, and it was kind of interesting. And you know, I think the thing about it was uh, it was just an, another way of getting uh, messages from one point to another, and sort yep. of, you know, you had these wars between Corba and Com, and you know, they didn't sort of get get along and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. So soap initially started out as RPC and very much oriented around the same kinds of things that Corba and Com were already doing. But I think over time people realized that if you're dealing with uh, XML, you're, you're really dealing with documents. Right. And so it's evolved, I would say, to a document passing system. Yeah. Now, that's not to say that people aren't doing RPC with it. Yeah. That's actually one of my pet peeves is this impedance mismatch of trying to map XML into objects or mm-hmm. vice versa. Yep. And it's just come from years of struggling with that mapping issue. I've written a number of columns about it and yep. in my blog and you know, whenever yeah. when I, every chance I get basically. We'll put the blog on the show <laughs> notes so people can read. There you go. Uh, so I think the more advanced web service developers are passing messages around documents. Yep specifically and they deal with documents they don't try to convert it into java or into c++ or, or whatever it is they they use it uh as a document and in that case it's not so much rpc anymore it's yeah. really more like messaging so that's also where i think one of the really you know measurable advantages of of web services or document oriented communication lies that if you for example take a corba idl struct or interface mm-hmm all the structures are compiled into the stubs. So if you evolve the definition of the struct, basically your your, your orb crashes or something like that. Right. If you have an, an, an interpreted data structure, you're much more flexible. You don't have to rebuild the infrastructure to evolve the document structure. Right. That gets into versioning, which is yes. a really hard problem, Especially as, as you know. Especially enterprise-wide <laughs> stuff. Right. right. And so it sort of moves, like what you just described, the versioning problem is propagated all through your applications. Yep. 
Whereas I think with a document passing, it's more like, you know, the versioning is in the document. Mm -hmm. It's still hard. Yeah. But at least you've kind of gotten it out of your uh, application. Right. And you you don't have to recompile stuff. Right. I mean, I've I've worked for a customer where it took a week to change, you know, to add an attribute to a data structure because they had to rebuild the whole infrastructure. Right. You have to rebuild, redeploy, yeah. retest, Re- you know, and the operators, system guys who actually run in production don't want to take a new version unless they absolutely have to. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. yeah. So what do you think about all those WS whatever standards? Are they going to be as, <laughs> to put it cynical, <laughs> as uh, pervasive as all those CORBA things where only like, like 10% of the, st- of the facilities and services have actually been implemented or 20%? So is right. this going to change now or same thing? I think it's going to be the same. Uh, I think there's well i'm not a big i'm a big fan of standards in mm-hmm. the sense that we need standards they're important to the industry what i'm not a big fan of is me personally working on them <laughs> <laughs> I, that's funny i talked to a couple of people at chat and everybody said you know these omg meetings it's so <laughs> awful to go right there. so i've been in omg i've been in uh w3c uh-huh. you know I don't think it's so much the organization as it is just the the process is political and social by nature. Um, You do get, most people are there to try to do reasonable work, but you do get people that are there seemingly to make other people's lives difficult. I don't know. And (laughs) so you wind up with kind of two issues. One, specs are just hard to work on to begin with. But I think you also have people that are sort of like professional standards people and that's their entire job is making standards so yeah. for them to start up a new spec and say hey we need a standard in this space it doesn't really you know seem to uh affect them in the in the sense like do we really need this yeah. you know, are you really thinking this through yeah. in the web services space there is still no architecture right there was a ws architecture group that i was on in Mm -hmm. the w3c years ago that really never produced anything and uh without something like that to kind of guide a coherent picture right like where do you put the specs how do they fit together and things like that so i think there are a lot of specs that are either going to be very you know in very small niches or just won't be used at all generally i think you know, the way the WS stuff has been put together is kind of like you get big companies that write the spec to begin with and then bring it to a standards body. And, you know, I'd ra- it's better than the um, design by committee, you know, starting from scratch in the committee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's sort of like you're kind of forced to start with their assumptions and their designs. And so it has a, a good good and bad side to it yeah. one comment i heard yesterday on that was that an omg standard is a political document masking as a software specification i, I like that <laughs> it's very good <laughs> so i'm not going to say who don't tell richard Soley that though he's much he, larger than i am he's probably going to <laughs> laugh about it <laughs> <laughs> so how, how important do you think are middleware standards and tools today Obviously, you need them at runtime to to mm-hmm. assure quality of service. But if you, you know, adopt like a model-driven approach, like the stuff Doug Schmidt is talking about, you know, um, it, you could argue that it doesn't really matter what specific middleware you're using from an API programmer's point of view, because you have all those abstractions, and then you have a generator that generates, you know, whatever WSTL, and then you have the web service, mm-hmm. or it generates IDL. So, any opinion there? 
Well, I'm not a big fan of the modeling stuff because it just seems like it's been going on and on for years, and yep. I don't know that they're making really good progress. I know they're making some, so yep. Doug may be unhappy with me for saying that. But <laughs> uh, but uh, I think there is something, and it sort of goes back to what we did with Artix, you know, the whole kind of there's multiple middleware systems and they need to be joined together, and, you know, systems like Artix can do that. Yeah. But I think the standards are still very important because you get this fragmentation in the enterprise due to uh, mergers and acquisitions, due yep. to you know different organizations with their own purchasing decisions, yeah. and, and then you reorg and find you know this organization bought all MQ series or something, yeah. and this one's all Corba. Now they have to interoperate, and how does that work? So yeah. I think, uh, especially in the messaging side of things, there hasn't been any protocol standards at all, right? Mm-hmm. So if you buy, you know. MQ from one person and MQ from another or JMS from anybody, you're getting a different protocol every time. So, you know, that's another thing that I'm working on now is the advanced message queuing protocol, which was put together by the financial community, primarily JP Morgan, Chase and company. Mm -hmm. And that's on its, on its uh, track or on, on, on the road, I suppose, to be a standard. Mm -hmm. A standard by the OMG or what? No, there's no standards body associated with it yet. There's an AMQP working group, which has got uh, a number of companies involved. And how is that different from, let's say, JMS or or MQ series? So what's the, well, the difference is it's actually two minute marketing plan. (laughs) On the wire protocol for messaging. Okay. So anybody implementing AMQ should interoperate with anybody else mm-hmm. implementing so like, AMQ. Like IIOP for message passing. Just exactly. For, yep. uh, for, for RPC. Right, for messaging. Mm-hmm. So there's a Cupid project in the Apache Incubator open source project that implements AMQ. There's also some uh, commercial uh, products from, I know of one from iMatics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so there are implementations of these, and it's interesting because the standards, you know, have been so important in the sort of RPC style of, of yeah. middleware for yeah. many yeah. years Truly now, yes. and now messaging is finally getting standards. So I think it's going to have a very large effect on the messaging uh, area. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact, not only do you have a standard, but now you have this open source system that's, you know, it's already there. You can go to Cupid uh, at a incubator.apache.org, look mm-hmm. for the Cupid project. SVN checkout and you actually have a working broker today written in Java another one in C++ and clients in those languages and in Ruby and in Python Mm -hmm. so So, so this brings us to the question: What your working focus is today? So I, I yeah. take it it's this this AMQ thing. Well, if I were if my uh, manager were here, I'd say I'm a hundred percent on AMQ because that's what he tells me every day. <laughs> uh, in reality, I have always have a variety of projects running, yeah. uh, but most of my time is on AMQ. I have a uh, I suppose it's like a hobby, but this dynamic language stuff that I've been working on for quite a while. Uh, I, I just think their languages like Ruby and Python are just very expressive. You can yep. say so much in, in so few lines of code. Yep. So I've been working on, like I did a JavaScript uh, server-side implementation for Celtics and Celtics Fire. So you can mm-hmm. write your server implementation in JavaScript mm-hmm. or in E4X, which is a XML handling language based over the top of JavaScript. Yep. And then I was working on some Ruby clients for Artix yep. and the expressiveness is amazing. Like you do in four or five lines of Ruby, what 70 or 80 lines of C++ can do. Yeah. 
So, so that that's also kind of another project. And then I always have my columns to write and, yeah. uh, you know. Usual PR stuff. Yeah. Well, I've been writing, it's called Tort Integration. I've been writing <laughs> that for, it'll be five years, I think, in January. And uh, it's interesting because it's like when uh, Doug Schmidt and I had a column for many years, it was all about Corba. Yep. This column's a little more general, so it's about integration, yep. middleware. Yep. I can cover a, a variety of things. So that's uh, that, you know, comes up every couple months. I have to write one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to do a lot more traveling and speaking at conferences, but um, been trying to tone that down a bit. So yeah. Jau this year is yeah, the only one. You know? We're actually recording <laughs> this at, at the Jau conference, yeah. and it's really one of the better conferences. My favorite. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> Many people will say that. I, I would agree. Right. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, let's let's maybe visit uh, Soa a little bit. So, okay. um, what's the role of Soa you see in the enterprise, and and how? I mean, you know, there was this panel on what's left to say on Soa, and and I got the impression there is not very much to say about Soa <laughs> because it's kind of you know components done right or whatever. So, any take on that? Well, I think Soa uh, is very important. First of all. But it's not as uh, hyped, I'd say, as, as some people would like to make it. You know, it, it's, it really comes down to fairly fundamental, I say, software engineering principles. You know, yeah. componentization, uh, modularity, uh, loose coupling, you know, yeah. nice, cohesive services put together yeah. and joined together. Self-sustaining kind right. of. So I think... You know, the, the panel, obviously I was on the panel because yeah. that's the track I spoke in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think the panel, uh, what was interesting to me about the, both the track and the panel is that we have a really good understanding of the technology and the, the technical hurdles to getting a SOA in place. Yeah. What we don't have a real good understanding of is the non-technical side. You know, there's Which would be? Well, um, some of the issues around... You know, which group in the enterprise builds the services? Is there mm. a group that gets paid to build services for other groups? Yeah. Does every group build their own services? Mm. What if those groups have to interoperate some point in the future? Yeah. What's uh, the scope of a data structure? Is it global, right. local to you service? Know, do you have one sort of enterprise-wide agreement on what a customer profile looks like versus every group having their own? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you can even get into issues like certain managers may want control over certain things that they are resisting SOA because it sort of removes some of their control yeah, or yeah, yeah. takes away part of their empire yeah, and yeah, things yeah. like that. <laughs> you might have uh, CEOs or C-level executives that don't quite understand how SOA can affect their business. Yeah. Um, actually, it could go both ways. You could have people who have sort of never heard of it and therefore don't even want to think about it. Yeah. Or you might have the C-level person who kind of hears about it and says, we have to do this. We are doing this, yeah. And, you know, you guys make it happen yeah. without any guidance and without, you know, addressing these non-technical issues in the yeah. organization. So it was interesting in that track. With all, I think all the speakers touched on that. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that's very important. The whole governance side of SOA where you have uh, repositories that kind of here's your services, yeah. here's the policies for using them. Yeah. And it, it's all tied into that. So It's interesting because many people talk about SOA, SOA as being the alignment of business and IT, you right. know, this business-driven stuff, and I never could 
relate to that very much because I mean in Endeffekt it, it doesn't say it doesn't say service oriented business it says sor service yeah. oriented architecture so it's an architectural yeah. thing but the organizational issues you touched upon they're different from the business issues and I think right. they're certainly challenges yeah there I think SOA is ultimately directed at making business value you know so but isn't that true for any IT and right and SOA is one way to do it yeah. and the fact that architecture is in the name is probably wrong maybe um I think when I was at Jau two years ago, I gave a talk where I said that SOA stands for service-oriented architecture, but that's actually not what it is. And I had a list of 12 things that <laughs> SOA isn't, you know, yeah. uh, that was one of them. And I think that's some of the backlash that SOA gets is it's somewhat misnamed. Mm. You know, it's really more around identifying the services in your business that are common across business processes that can be reused across processes yeah. and shared among groups. And it's really an ultimately an IT cost saver, right? If you do it right. If you do it right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So anything else you want to say? Uh, want to let us know about your passion? <laughs> well, I mentioned the dynamic language thing. That's, yeah. that's really sort of big in my mind. Yeah. Um, I just think there's so much to it. And it, and it may be you know, an overreaction from having years of C++ <laughs> and Java, yeah, you know, yeah, just yeah. that's, that's all every day. But I think, uh, that's an area I'm going to be working a lot more on going forward. So we're waiting for a car bomb mapping for Ruby, right? <laughs> well, there already is one for Python. Oh, so, okay. You know. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much for being on the show and thank uh, you. have a good time playing with Ruby. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. If you want to get more information about Software Engineering Radio or if you want to give us feedback, please go to our website at se-radio.net. You can also contact the team at team at se-radio.net, although we prefer entries in our comments system on the website so other people can see what you think. Software Engineering Radio wants to thank Henning Pauli for the intro and outro music, as well as Lipson for providing the bandwidth. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, is licensed under Creative Commons license. See the Software Engineering Radio website for details.